0: Hello, and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is a cross-partisan nonprofit building a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Sarah Cho, and this week, Inika Kodestane, Juliana Davis, Rhea Mehta, and I spoke with Graham Brownstein, Chief Strategy Officer for Global Water Farms. Graham is a strong proponent that the country has gone too far for too long with shelter in place orders in relation to COVID-19, with catastrophic consequences for communities that are disproportionately low income and of color. He shares his concerns and rationale, and we had a rich discussion about where we are in relation to the pandemic and implications for the road ahead. Thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, my name is Ineca Kodistane, and I'm a sophomore from New Jersey. I'm especially interested in journalism and how that's playing into politics, especially during the pandemic.
2: Hi, I'm Juliana Davis. I'm from Manhattan, and I'm a senior in high school, and I'm really interested in how other people like average citizens feel the response to the pandemic is.
3: Hi, I'm Ria. I'm a senior in high school in central New Jersey, and I'm really passionate about bipartisanship and reducing hyperpolarization.
0: Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm a senior at the Spence School. um, Recently graduated (laughs) a senior at the Spence School um, from New York City, and I'm interested particularly in topics of immigration uh, and civic engagement. And I'm also a lead fellow for Next Generation Politics.
4: I'm uh, Graham Brownstein. Um, I am the chief strategy officer for a company called Global Water Farms. Prior to that, I spent about 20 years um, working on Essential services, infrastructure, and uh, environmental planning and policy, um, largely around things like climate change and uh, affordable housing and equitable transportation.
3: Well, we're really excited to have you. And um, before we jump into the conversation, um, do you want to start off uh, just by giving the listeners a little bit more of like an in-depth bio about your work and some of like the research you've done and some of like um, the you know uh, connections you made and things like that.
4: Sure. So, um, I guess I'll just say very briefly, I, um, I got very interested when I was, um, about your guys's age, um, in how communities function or don't function and began to study what I call essential services infrastructure, which are basically all of the systems that allow us to get up every day and live our lives. So everything from utilities, transportation, um, environmental planning, water, sewage, um, all of it, all of the systems that we rely on that we don't even really think about. And uh, what I realized was that all of these systems essentially behave like pipelines and who builds them and who controls the spigots or the entry and exit or ingress, egress points along the pipeline ends up determining whether the pipeline is used to make a lot of money for some corporate entity or whether the pipeline is used to actually support community viability and sustainability. Mm -hmm. And so I began to work on policies that Um, policy reforms that were designed to try to ensure that all of these essential systems are well regulated so that they are um, actually managed in the public interest. It's okay if people are making money too, but the systems need to be regulated so that they function in the public interest. And I got into the work I'm doing now, Uh, We're bringing a new um, environmentally friendly approach to saltwater desalination to market. It's an off-grid solar thermal um, integrated combined cycle system that distills saltwater and generates very low cost electricity and produces no brine effluent. So it's it's designed to be a tool that we can use to help tackle the global water and climate crises. And that is also designed to try to ensure that there will be equitable, affordable access to water, to high quality water for all people and for the environment again there will probably be some people who make money but the whole idea here was to develop a a system that can be deployed that will actually solve problems in a meaningful way so that's my background in a nutshell and what i'm doing now
2: that sounds so interesting especially with um the aspect that's geared towards helping um underserved communities getting access to water But in terms of the topic of the podcast today, I understand you're opposed to the stay-at-home orders. And for myself and listeners, it would be really interesting if you could speak to why you're opposed to them and what you think could be done differently.
4: So I think it would probably be too strong a statement to say that I am just flat out opposed to all stay-at-home orders. My feelings are this. I believe that that overall this response that we have undertaken in most of this country is grounded in fear, is racist, is based in a very narrow sliver of thinking from one piece of the medical community. So is not, you know, they keep saying it's science-based. Well, not really. I mean, it's science-based for one very narrow set of, of thinkers, but it's not actually reflective of broad even medical thinking, let alone scientific thinking. It's not entirely biologically sound. It's clearly insane socially and economically. It's also ultimately ineffective because you can't re-engineer the human animal on the fly. I learned something doing policy work over the years, and that is if you hear a politician or anybody in a position of power proposing a solution to a problem, and that solution involves doing something that is literally impossible to do, then it's not a real good solution, right? So like re-engineering, you know, an eons evolved human animal behavior and mass in a matter of weeks, that's literally not possible to do. And so it's not going to be an effective solution if that's part of your solution. So, um, And then finally, I'd say my last criticism of it is that it's not entirely proportionate to the real threat. Um, You know, if there were a threat, if we were facing a threat that actually posed the potential of killing hundreds of millions of people, uh, you know, some huge portion of the world's population, we would clearly have no choice but to shut the planet down. You know, because we wouldn't be able to withstand the, the flood of hundreds of millions of people dying in a short period of time. That's not the threat we're facing here. Yes, people are dying in greater numbers than they do from ex- existing regular flu viruses, but the numbers are not catastrophic in terms of our society's ability to handle patients. We've proven that these last two months. So um I can't think of a single reason right now why a sh- a stay at home order blanket stay at home order um really makes makes any sense or is in any way a a uh, defensible policy.
2: Um I have a follow up question but I also do want to say that I agree with you especially your statement about like having blanket stay at home orders like I remember reading about how states in like the west and the midwest like wyoming were shutting down their states when they had like one or two cases because like that was before like i live in new york city and like the state of wyoming is shutting down they have a lesser population than like manhattan and they're shut down and like i wonder how that would affect like the agricultural industry like that's the first thing i thought of but i was also wondering if you could speak to because you mentioned how like it there's a racial undertone to the the stay-at-home orders if you could
4: okay so I, I hear, I've heard, I'm seeing on Instagram and you know the news. But peop, you, there there are a lot of um, well off white people saying you have to stay home because if you don't, you're endangering my family or endangering people. Those are such white privilege entitled statements. And even if they're not white people making them, they're still white privilege entitled statements because the only way people can stay home is if lots of other people are not staying home because most of the people staying home aren't staying home on a farm where they can grow their own food and meet their own basic needs. So to say you have to stay home presumes that there are going to be millions of people, and let's face it, they are mostly not wealthy and they are mostly not white people who are going to be picking the food and packaging it and delivering it and everything else that allows privileged people like me to sit, to sit at home. So it's so racist and it's wrapped up in this whole, do your service, civic duty, patriotic, protect our vulnerable people. It's wrapped up in this, you know, we're at war kind of thing, but it's like, you're not on the front lines, you're sitting at home. There's a deep, deep racial entitlement component to this whole, um, to the whole thinking about this, even being a doable thing you know um there's clear clearly no poor people or people of color were <laughs> consulted in developing this this, this approach because you know, they might have pointed out you know this kind of little little inequitable here how, how this is going to play out so it
2: makes me think of um there was this tweet that went viral that was like, it was a screen grab from the movie Parasite, the part of the movie where like, there's a super huge rainstorm and like the people living in the inner city, like everybody's apartment is like flooded to the ceiling. And then like, she's on like, the sister is on the phone with the rich woman. And she's like, oh, that rain was such a blessing. And the tweet was like, this is how some of y'all sound when you say quarantine is a blessing. Right. And like, I'm guilty of it too, like upper middle class privilege of just like, I'd gotten to like, enjoy this time right. to like, self reflect and like, That's just, it's not a reality for other people. And I do, I agree with what you said.
4: And again, I'm not saying people shouldn't stay home if they want to, or if they feel that they need to. I think certainly the most vulnerable populations probably should do everything they can to generally stay home. But even they should be able to make the decision. And I guess that's the last point that I really want to make here. And I know there are a lot of sort of um, more purely libertarian thinkers out there who are sort of just making, hammering away on the constitutional freedoms point. And yeah, I'm a lawyer. I am absolutely a a huge fan of our constitutional freedoms. I also understand that all freedoms have to be balanced at times with other concerns and other interests. So, you know, um, but I do think that there is, you know, Anytime you're, you're, you are restricting fundamental rights that you have to narrowly tailor, legally, you have to narrowly tailor the restrictions, right? Um, So that they are defensible, so that they are justifiable, so that they are actually focused on solving a a real problem. Um, And they also have to be time limited right? You can't just indefinitely take away people's constitutional rights. Some of what I'm hearing and had some of what we've all been hearing these last weeks is very deeply concerning because it suggests that there are a lot of, you know, very bright people in positions of, of authority who are seriously contemplating uh, imposing um, requirements on people that are clearly unconstitutional. I mean, just on the face so you know there is a there is also a a a constitutional and democratic element or layer to to this whole thing that needs to be considered ideally we should be able to get to a place where we are all given good information and then we can all collectively and individually make decisions about what we want to do with that information and how we want to behave. And so some people may choose to to take more extreme measures to protect themselves, and that's fine, but their particular individual heightened levels of fear or anxiety should not be the metric or the, the, the measuring stick that determines how everybody else has to behave. That's just not how a democracy actually functions.
3: Yeah, and I feel like, you know, something that like you really highlighted in, in your um, thoughts and views about this, about the pandemic was that um, the the government's response to the coronavirus is telling on its um, inability to respond to other crises, like climate change and things like that. And I think that also kind of put in perspective for me, like how the depth of resources our government has. And do you want to maybe speak on that a little bit more and explain how maybe this pandemic kind of changed your view on the government's reach and what they can and, and can't do for other crises?
4: I have all, you know, I've always been a belie- a big believer in the ability of, look, government is us, right? We are, in this society, in this country anyway, we are the government. I mean, it is a democracy. We get the government that we deserve. We get the government that we fight for. We get the, we get the governmental actions that we fight for. Sometimes we lose, sometimes we don't get what we want, but if you keep at it, you know, collectively we do get progress by being involved in the process of making decisions as how we, to how we want to be governed. I I do think that, that there, for decades we have seen, um, an increasing amount of capture. I mean, I don't know if you guys have studied social capture theory, but basic concept is that there are very powerful corporate interests in the world that need to be regulated by the government in order to ensure that what those corporations are doing doesn't harm people and is actually in the public interest. For decades, we have experienced an erosion of good regulation. We have experienced an an increasing amount of what is called social capture, which is essentially corporations have become increasingly powerful in their ability to influence and control and direct what government does. Um, And that's a problem because corporations are not actually generally functioning. It, they don't generally exist to function in the public interest. They generally exist to, per, to generate revenue and make money for their shareholders. Now, corporations can also do all kinds of good things and they do, but that their primary purpose is not the public interest. So you need a robust governmental regulatory um, regime to ensure that corporations are behaving well and We have seen none of that happening here. Um, In fact, we've seen the opposite. We've seen some of the most powerful corporate entities in the world, the pharmaceutical industry, um, exert tremendous influence over dozens and dozens and dozens of major governments all over the world by scaring them into thinking that this is going to be just people dropping in the streets left and right. And that the only solution is a very heavily medicalized drug solution, i.e. a vaccine, a new vaccine. And now we're off to the races with, you know, all of the major drug manufacturers and all of the big governments in the world partnering up and competing to see who can come up with the first vaccine. Because, hey, if you get to vaccinate, you know, 7 billion people, that's that's a lot of money. That's a big job, you know, (laughs) it's a big contract. So, uh, you know, that is a big agenda that is at play here that is not being talked about at all. And I'm not saying that that's not potentially a useful tool. It could be a useful tool. I'm just saying it needs to be a tool that is heavily regulated. And right now it's the opposite.
0: No, it's very interesting, and I definitely see that you have a lot of valid points pertaining to why, you know, some, this kind of blanket stay at home policy isn't really working out, especially for many, you know, communities of frontline workers and um, underprivileged communities. And I was just curious um, to hear kind of what you would think if you could propose something or you could advocate for some kind of course of action um, for this country in order to like improve the situation, what you think should be done, A, and B, also you talked a little bit about how you feel like citizens should be informed and then be free to make their own decisions but of course with like the media going crazy around this issue it's kind of hard to not get wrapped up in this sort of blanket of fear um yeah. so sort of how citizens how listeners out there can really inform themselves what do you like what kind of advice would you offer pertaining to
4: that okay a few things first i do think that you have we we all really would be do ourselves well to make a conscious choice every morning to not subscribe to any kind of fear programming, um, whether it's related to this virus or really just about anything else. Um, I don't know if any of you've, you know, looked into Buddhism or, you know, but, um, you know, Attachment to fear is not a productive way to live. (laughs) So um, definitely not a good place to make calm, rational decisions from. Um, So yeah, choosing, but you have to, in this climate, in this environment, in this media environment, and in this um, public um, kind of shaming environment that's going on, you really have to make a conscious choice and then a conscious effort throughout the day to not be afraid Um, because everything and everybody is telling you to be afraid. Um, So that's the first thing, because if you don't make that choice, then you're really not going to be operating from a sane, rational place. So you're not, (laughs) you're not going to be able to, uh, you know, to, uh, to figure out other ways of navigating your day or your life, so that's the first thing. Um, the second thing I would say is um, try to to minimize watching television news. Um, I um, I love the news. I read a lot of news, and I used to watch a lot of news, but I made a decision um, about mid March um, right around, maybe it was the second or third week of March, right, right. It was, you know, I had been scared for a couple of weeks. Everybody had been, everybody was terrified. And my wife and I had a conversation and, and, uh, we looked at some alternative medical viewpoints and we just made a decision, you know, well, we don't have all the answers, but, um, we're going to just not be afraid. We're going to be, we're going to live our lives and we're going to be human and we're going to, you know, something's going to kill us. I don't think it's going to be this. It might be, but I don't, I don't think it is. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to live in fear of it. And that just that decision and then making that decision every day is, has, has, you know, allowed us to, um, avoid things like, okay, this is making me feel unnecessarily scared. So I'm going to turn this off. So I'm just not watching the news. You know, I read the news, but even reading the news, if I'm reading an article and I feel like I've already, you know, I've already got this. I already understand what this, you know, I've read 10 other horror stories like this about somebody dying. I don't need to read this one. You know, I get that people are dying. I get it. You know, um, I haven't read a lot of stories about all the people who are still dying of malnutrition and still dying of diarrhea and still dying of bad air i mean there, there haven't been any stories about those folks in the new york times lately but every day there's a drumbeat of stories about all the people dying from coronavirus so you know i get that um but i'm choosing to not just uh bathe in that you know um and then i'm i'm actively seeking out um alternative viewpoints and i'm actively seeking out um people in person when I'm out and about in the world um, to engage with about this stuff. You know, what, to go into the grocery store here in Mendocino, I have to wear a mask because that's what they're telling us all to do. Um, I don't want to, I don't think it's doing anything. I think it's complete theater. There's nobody up here with coronavirus. I mean, it's a ridiculous thing. It, you know, it's like, <laughs> why are we wearing back. There's nobody here who has the virus. But we're we're all wearing masks. In fact, there was a guy wearing a full-on half-mat suit in the grocery store the other day, right? I mean, it's like, you know. So, um, but I'm talking to people, right? I'm just, because everybody's scared and kind of, so I'm, you know, just engage people. Talk to them, you know, like, how are you doing? Like, pull your mask down. Be a renegade. Go like, hey, can I see your, you know, what, like, here's my face, (laughs) you know, like, good to see you, you know? Um, Be human, do things that are normal human things, because this is not normal human stuff. And we, we can't let this become normal human stuff. Um, and remember also that, um, you know, you evolved, your body has an evolved intelligence to deal with viruses, because your body is dealing with viruses all the time including a lot of coronaviruses, like dozens of them. So yes, this is a bad one right now. It's going to mutate into a weaker state over the next year or two, and it will become part of the background of coronaviruses, and we will all be fine. We're spending all this time trying to figure out how to re-engineer humanity around this thing that isn't really that big of a threat, and we're not doing the work that we really need to be doing around the thing that is the real threat, which is climate. And that, you know, I'm not surprised because I've been watching us not do what we've needed to do for 25 years now. And we always come up with some <laughs> new excuse to not do what we need to do on climate. And, you know, but there is an opportunity here. There is an opportunity here for, for, especially, you know, those of us who are, who are younger, I mean, you guys especially, I mean, I'm in my 40s, but you guys especially, I, we are heading into a new world um, here because of, of what's happening with this virus. There are going to be all kinds of splintering pathways um, moving out from this moment. We really need as many people as possible to anchor um, a, a, a timeline or reality that is a reality that actually addresses climate change and actually addresses it in a way that deals with all of the inequities in the world. And we, we can do that. Some, not everybody in the world will, will follow that thread, but you know if enough of us kind of anchor that reality, we can make sure that that is a big part of the overall human conversation that's happening. And I really want to make sure we don't lose this opportunity to do that.
3: Interesting that you um, brought up Buddhism, just because um, I just recently read the Book of Joy by mm. the Dalai Lama, mm. and um, a lot of what he says is like is like it's very like centered and individual individual centered, I think. And I think it's not. I think like a lot of the behavior in terms of like not social di- social distancing or not wearing masks people deem it as like selfish, right? And I think that's um very uh contrary to at least what his perspective is and I think a little bit of what yours is too is that um you know he talks a lot about like the hedonic treadmill and how America has become like or just people in general have become so conditioned to materialism that um that's kind of like our first approach to everything. And that's why, you know, when you talked about like the farm farm companies like making money off of this, I think that kind of Brings it back to that same point.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And look, I mean, I, you know, um, I, f- I feel really sorry for people who think that it's selfish to not wear a mask. I, I do. I think they're dealing with some very deep cognitive distortions and a lot of fear and anxiety. And I'm sorry that they are in such a state of suffering, but it's not really possible to engage in a. Some, one of you asked, you know, how do we. Can we engage people? Uh, and I was thinking about it. I, you know, it's very hard to engage people who are not in a rational frame of mind. I mean, you know, it's one of the weirdest aspects of what's been happening these last weeks. Is you know, I am as I am as far to the left as politically as 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 you can be. Okay, um, but I've all of a sudden found myself. At least in agreement with some big Trumpers and like big time, you know, Christian evangelicals on certain ways of thinking about this thing, because they are um, very concerned about about their their idea of bodily autonomy, right? And um, and it's 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 been an interesting thing to experience like, okay, you know, I'm suddenly in strange bedfellows territory here. And, um, and people who I had thought for a long time were completely out of their minds now are saying things that sound a lot more rational to me than, you know, but, but what's the big difference? These people, the people who these sort of this, I'm going to just call them sort of Trumpers or evangelical Christians or whatever, who are not buying the whole fear response that's why we're more in agreement because they're not, they're not that afraid of this. And so that is a big, big piece of it, I've realized. If you're, if you're just stewed in fear, then it colors everything about how you think about everything. And it's very hard to think about things in any kind of balanced way.
1: I'm someone that really only saw basically two different like ways to get out of this. And that was either lockdown or completely, completely reopening. So, I mean, just from what you're saying, you're like you're on both sides of like the political spectrum right now. And I'm just wondering, like, what do you think is like a good alternative to our current response to sort of allow for like equality among people. So you're not having people that are risking their lives so that others can stay at home. So like, what do you think is like a good way to find that middle ground and actually allow for like a reopening, but still like keeping precautions and just making sure that there's not fear mongering, but there's also not just a completely like reopening of the nation.
4: Again, I I, I would, If I was just in charge, I would probably have crafted a response that looked a lot like what they did in Sweden. Their response seems to me to be a very kind of close to ideal middle way model, right? It's like, yes, this is serious. Yes, we need to take precautions. You should not gather in big crowds, you know, so we're not gonna have big events right now but you can still go to a restaurant just like, you know, take it easy. Maybe think about whether you really need to go or not. You know, if you're at risk, you maybe really should reconsider and not go. Um, schools, keep the schools open. Cause yeah, although some kids seem to get this, like very few get really sick. So like, let's keep the kids in school because that's an important thing for them. And it keeps society moving and keeps everybody sane. You know, let's keep businesses functioning, and I mean, just take precautions. You know, everybody in Sweden seemed to get the message. You know, I do trust that people are generally capable of making rational decisions if you present them with good information in a calm manner.
3: Um How do you think? You know. This crisis and the government's handling and and the public's reaction has altered trust in government and altered that relationship that Mm. most people hold
4: Well, trust in government has been eroding a long time Largely because um, the Republican Party has had an agenda to destroy people's trust in government Um, So um, you know, when one of your two main political parties um, decides that they don't like democracy anymore, that they just want power, that's a problem. And <laughs> so we've been living with that for a while. Um, because yeah, they've they've done a lot of damage over these last decades uh, to the democracy. Um, so we were start we came into this from a very weakened place uh, or in a very weakened state and um and the complete joke of an of a you know and it's not a response that just the complete joke of a way that our uh the current occupant of the white house has behaved through this whole thing is obviously also you know not at all helpful um but quite frankly, I haven't seen very much good leadership even from folks like my governor, Newsom, and Cuomo in New York. Um, a, lot of, um, a lot of very fear-based decision-making. Um, again, very, very limited information that they went on to make the decisions they made. So I, um, I think that this has done a huge amount of damage. It's, an, it's a big concern.
2: That's all for today, friends. I'm editor Sarita Adabala signing off for all of us at Next Generation Politics. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends, or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded.
3: Thanks for listening.